At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Today on the podcast, we have Sammy Joe Small, three-time Olympic medalist and five-time world champion goalie for Canada's women's hockey team. Not only is she an elite athlete, she's also incredibly smart, as she received a track and field scholarship from Stanford University, where she graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering. Nope, that's not all. She also has a brand new book called The Role I Played, Canada's Greatest Olympic Hockey Team. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for coming on. We're so thrilled to have you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so I know that you're a Winnipegger like myself. and oh, amazing. Yeah, I had the pleasure of hearing you uh, come speak at my school, actually, um, when I was younger. What school was it? I think it was St. John Brebeuf, but if I'm not okay. mistaken, I think you also came to my high school, which uh, was St. Which was Mary's. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I feel like I've spoken at both of those. Yeah, I definitely got around in Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, growing up and playing hockey with the boys? Well, I grew up in Winnipeg. Katie, are you also from Winnipeg or no? No, I'm from Hamilton, actually. Oh, okay, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, obviously, I am um, older than you guys. However, um, when I grew up in Winnipeg at the time, um, there was no girls hockey teams. So as you know, there's a ton of outdoor ice in, in Winnipeg. And I had an older brother who played a lot of street hockey. So I played street hockey with him. And I asked my parents if I could play hockey because that's what he was going to go play. And I was really fortunate that my parents themselves were not really hockey people, we'll say. They didn't really understand that girls didn't play. So when we went to my local community center, I grew up in St. Patel. Um, they just registered me as Sam Small, um, not trying to get away with anything. That was just simply my name. 
and were a little uh, mystified at the first practice when there was no other little girls. Um, they soon realized that this was very different, uh, but they allowed me to play. And I'm so thankful that they could see the smile that I had through my cage and just could know how much joy it brought me. Um, and so really kind of shielded me and protect me from a lot of the negative comments that initially were swirling around me as a young five-year-old. I mean, I soon started to hear them and it obviously got a lot tougher, but by then I'd sort of uh, infiltrated, I guess, uh, the men's hockey ranks and uh, some of my biggest supporters were my teammates. So I was really lucky that I had some pretty amazing teammates that stuck up for me and, and really allowed me to play. You know, I think back to my childhood, if anyone had been really super miserable to me, I might not have continued to play. And while there was negative things said to me, it was usually by opponents. It was um, usually opponent, opponents, parents more than the actual opponents. Um, but the guys on my team were, um, were super inclusive. They treated me like a sister and um, I just felt very fortunate. I didn't really realize that most of my peers didn't get to play. I just assumed that the girls didn't want to play. I didn't know that they had been told that they couldn't or they, um, their parents didn't allow them. Um, but so I grew up in Winnipeg dreaming of playing in the NHL for the Winnipeg Jets. And I soon realized that that probably wasn't going to happen. And I went to Collège Jean Sauvé. So I was at a small French immersion school. And luckily enough, uh, well, I guess not luckily enough, but if we wanted to have a team in women's sports, all of us had to play. So I got to play so many different sports uh, growing up. And I feel very thankful that I did because some of the sports I, I did really well and others I was terrible, but I got to kind of learn all the different roles within a team. And um, I got to have some pretty amazing, incredible teammates that really became friends for life as well. So speaking of other sports, um, you know, you talk about swimming and your brother was, was also a swimmer. Obviously, you had your track scholarship um, and, of course, hockey. But I'm just curious, you know, what was it about hockey? Why was that the sport that went out for you? So I've been asked that a lot recently with the book because I do talk <laughs> a lot about the other sports and how much I just I loved play. And I think I didn't think hockey would win out. You know, I loved it for sure, but I, I really loved all the other sports as well. And I think, you know, part and parcel of it is growing up in Winnipeg where hockey is so iconic that it's kind of what everybody does. There was a rink um, right beside my school um, so I could go skating after school. So I maybe progressed faster in that sport than maybe I did in other sports. Um, but I accepted a track and field scholarship down to Stanford University to throw the discus and javelin because women's hockey was not on the world scene yet. It was not an Olympic sport. I had never dreamt about going to the, um, the Olympics in hockey. I'd never dreamt about playing for Team Canada because that didn't exist for me growing up. I, I had never seen it. You know, I'd, I didn't know that that was a possibility. So I dreamt of going to the Olympics for sure but it was never in the sport of hockey. So, you know, I, I had fully anticipated when I went away to college that that would be the end of my hockey career, despite the fact that I'd been playing men's AAA hockey. Um, but I was lucky enough to end up at a school in California where they just happened to have a men's club hockey team that I could join. And I just kind of kept my skills up. It was just a way for me kind of solace away from the, the, the rigors of being an NCAA athlete in track and field. And um, I think because it was so much fun and it was something that I just had zero pressure, it just allowed me to um, really enjoy it and get better probably every time I stepped on the ice for no other reason than simply to compete. And, you know, I think had I grown up in a different part of the country or maybe in a different country altogether, um, 
I think I would have pursued any sport that was sort of the regular, um, that was sort of the one that was played in that community. Um, I now live in Mississauga where, um, you know, there's not as many rinks uh, in the GTA. And so who knows if I had grown up in this area, you know, I might've been involved in something completely different. I might've ended up as a basketball player or as a cricket player or who knows what uh, the sport would have been. But I just, I just absolutely love the, the idea of play, just being out there and competing, um, whether I'm horrible or whether I'm really good at it. It, uh, I just love being on the field of play. And so keeping with, uh, with hockey, you didn't start out as a goaltender, um, you transitioned to become a goaltender. So what happened there? What inspired you to be a goaltender? I think I always wanted to be a goalie. Do either of you guys play hockey or did you play hockey? No. no. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So I feel like when you start hockey, you kind of have to be a player. There's no, on little kids teams, they rotate the goalie. So everybody kind of gets a chance in that. So every chance I got in that, I loved it. But also my brother forced me to be the goalie a lot in their street hockey game. <laughs> so there was not always a choice to it, but I embraced it. I think because I knew that that was the way I could play with the boys. Um, I then became a fan of goaltending even before I was allowed to be a goalie. So I didn't transition until I was about nine or 10. Um, not because I didn't want to, but because my parents didn't want to buy the equipment. So I think it helped my development to become a better skater and just a, an overall athlete, um, being able to, you know, see all the different positions. But I certainly at the age of six, seven, eight years old would watch Hockey Night in Canada and would jump up and down on my bed and do all the moves that the goalies did on TV. So I think it was, you know, predetermined perhaps in my fate. Uh, I think my parents were kind of holding off as long as they could. Like, is this really something she wants? And they themselves not being hockey people, I'm sure were just terrified that their little girl wanted to be the goalie. But, you know, I, I fell in love with it. And um, I think it, has, it was something I always kind of wanted to do. Um, I just wasn't allowed until a little bit later. So keeping with how you were talking about, you didn't think you would end up going to the Olympics for hockey. It just didn't seem like it was an option for you. I, I'm really curious about, you know, how did you have the courage to kind of take that risk? like going into your fourth year at Stanford, you know, you talk about that phone call with your throwing coach and it's just chilling. How did you work up to take that, that big jump? Um, well, I'm glad that it was chilling because I really <laughs> read her in with me. So it was certainly chilling for me. I think, I don't know. I was young and naive first off. I mean, right <laughs> off the bat, you know, had I, I'm now 44. So if at 44, I had that, you know, kind of laid out in front of me as a potential option, I might not have done it. It might not have been something that seemed kind of worthwhile with it being such a long shot. But I don't know, at the time it was, I don't know, when you're a college kid, I just feel like your life is a whirlwind anyways, that it was kind of like, okay, like, oh, I'll just stay in Calgary a little bit longer, or I'll just, you know, a couple extra weeks. And I don't know if I ever really thought I would make that team. You know, I thought that maybe I could have a couple more weeks of playing hockey and then I would just go back to my Stanford degree and I would just continue on in mechanical engineering. Um, and every, you know, every day, every week that I stayed with that program seemed like just extra icing on the cake. It, it um, I guess, you know, I, I was disappointed when I got cut initially. I was brought back later to that team, but I guess I kind of, expected it being um so young and so I mean the other goalies were really entrenched within that program so I knew it was going to be hard but 
Yeah, I, I fully expected my Stanford track and field coach where I was on full scholarship to tell me no. And maybe that's why I made that phone call was I wanted somebody else to make the decision for me. So when he said, yes, go for it. So almost like, well, I guess I got to do it now. <laughs> so sometimes you just need that little extra push from somebody else, I think, from the outside and, and have a little mix of naivete too, to not really understand, you know, the cost of things. Like I didn't really understand what a year at Stanford cost at the time. Being on scholarship, it was just something that wasn't really part of, you know, the conversation until I realized that I was foregoing a year off scholarship. That was a, you know, a big deal. And luckily in the end, I ended up getting that anyways, but none of that really came into play at the time. So um, I don't know, stupidity. (laughs) It's funny to hear you speak about it now, because when I was reading in or listening to the book, there was a quiet sense of confidence I always felt within you. And and maybe it was because I knew how it ended. I wasn't expecting you to go through so much turmoil. I'm like, she's fine. She ends up at the Olympics. And it all goes well in the end. So it's just, it's, it's funny to see how it comes off actually off the page. You know, what I really tried to write in the book was as if I was in that moment. And I think that's how I felt in that moment. And I look back now and I think, you know, I look at other 20 year olds and I'm like, how did I possibly have that confidence in that moment? How did I, you know, how I get often asked, how did I have the confidence even to play men's hockey? And to me, it was just almost as if life was happening and I was doing it like that. This is okay. This is what we're doing. Um, so I think that, you know, part of that comes with youth for sure. I think you as a once you have gone through a bunch of different experiences, you start to realize that things could potentially go wrong. I think, you know, at that point in my life, not much had really gone wrong. And um, in very good ways, you know, obviously, I had had challenges and obstacles, but um, I was allowed to play hockey, I was allowed to pursue academics, you know, I, I was it, I hadn't had really the challenges that were about to sort of enter into my athletic career. So I also look back at it and think, how did I have so much confidence then? Not to say that I don't still have confidence, but certainly is different when you're younger. So keeping with uh, this theme of changing from uh, or playing with boys, rather, of course, once you started playing with Team Canada, it was an all girls team. And you talk about the differences in, in being a goalie for a team of boys and rather than a team of girls. And can you just talk us through that transition? And what was, what was it like to, to all of a sudden be the only girl or to be among all these girls on your team? For sure. It was, it was certainly different. I think, you know, I had played women's sports, so I'd played volleyball and basketball. It's not like I wasn't used to other female athletes, but I had never played hockey where I could shower. I mean, just a simple thing like that (laughs) was um, very exciting for me that, Oh, afterwards, you know, you don't have to really quickly hurry out. I was, I was, I had become an expert at quickly changing because I was always in a men's dressing room. There was never like an extra closet for me to go in Basically, I would just arrive later than the guys, so they were, would already have changed, or they would go in the bathroom and, and change, and then we would get dressed together. So I always had a t-shirt or gym shorts. Um, so this, that was, I mean, just sort of from a basic level, that was awesome, because then I could cool down, I could be a real athlete, you know, within that construct. However, it certainly was different, because I think playing men's hockey, I had unknowingly to myself really taken on myself to showcase my gender and I always felt like that I had this extra pressure on me to perform because I felt like 
this might be the one and only time that this person's going to see a female hockey player and I wanted to do well. So I put the pressure on myself for sure. And I think that that's what allowed me to excel in, um, in men's sports and to get better was that I just always felt like I needed to prove it to everybody. Suddenly when I got into a women's team, I didn't have that anymore. And that was a bit of a struggle because that's where I found a lot of my motivation. So now suddenly I was amongst a lot of other female athletes and I wasn't different. I think sometimes, you know, when we're, we're different at anything growing up, whether it is uh, gender, race, ethnicity, uh, background, sexual orientation, whatever it is that makes us different, I think can either go two ways. We are seen as a part. So we feel different. We feel like we're on the outside or you can internalize it and think the way that I thought, which was that, you know, you want to prove it to people. Now it becomes a lot of pressure and it shouldn't have to just be one person to do that. I look back at it now and I realize that um, that was a, you know, a hard position to be in. However, when I wasn't different, that was a tough transition. That was perhaps the toughest transition because now I was playing amongst my peers. I was with women who, you know, were like me. This was really the first time that I had met uh, people that loved hockey as much as I did that were girls, but I wasn't different. So I think it took me a little while to find the internal motivation to really, you know, what was it that sparked me? And luckily my first women's team was the Olympic team. So I didn't have to look very far because it was making the Olympics. Um, However, I think I, I see a lot of girls struggle with that. And I often get asked by parents, when should their daughters transition to all female sports? Should they? And what will happen to their development? I get all asked all these questions. And I often say it should be up to the girl. So, you know, ask her. She's generally old enough to figure that out. But I do see girls struggle when they first go over to female sports. Um, because I think that they've they had sort of that, that pressure on their shoulders for a long time. And when you suddenly uh, transition in female sports, the, the sport is different, you know, and it, uh, it could be that the women, for me as a goaltender, they didn't shoot as hard, but they still scored. And that was so annoying for me because I felt like, you know, I watched them and I like, I should stop these pucks and yet they're still going in. But they had found a way to master the angles differently than the men had. So I had to transition to a whole new sport um, sort of as a goaltender and allowing myself to see them as equals also. You know, I felt like I had a little bit of a chauvinistic attitude when I came over to the women's game. Like, I've played with, with men. How good can these girls be? And it took me a while to not um, be so upset with myself because they still were scoring a lot of goals. So um, clearly I had to, you know, transition in my own head to kind of get out of my head and just find the reasons why I love the sport again, you know, find that that joy of play and realize that these women were exactly like me and to really find that commonality that I had longed for really my entire life. Now, suddenly I had it and it was like, oh, these women are not as good as me. But the reality was they were just as good and better than me. And I just needed to kind of come full circle to see that. So speaking of Team Canada, can you articulate like what was your first kind of Olympic moment, like when you really felt like you'd kind of arrived at your Olympic dream? I think for sure that would be the opening ceremonies of my first Olympics. I think, you know, within the book, I talk a lot, a lot about those moments of the opening and closing ceremonies. And I think what makes those so special for every Olympian is that there is no pressure. You know, you can't, you can't do it wrong. I mean, I guess, I guess you could and the cameras follow you and you do something crazy, but 
for the most part, you're just walking around the stadium with no pressure. So every other aspect of being an Olympian is super planned out. Um, it's, you know, every five minutes of every day is planned out by somebody else. And you're just kind of following the schedule based on not only just that those two weeks, but based on that entire cycle, based on that entire year, based on the four years leading up to it. These moments are all planned out all the way back then. So um, you know what you have to do when it comes down to game time, practice time at the Olympics. It is, you know, what you've prepared for. It's what you've planned for. And there isn't much time to just kind of sit and let it soak in like the opening and closing ceremonies. And that's when I think I really had the, um, I guess the realization, maybe that's the wrong word, but the, um, the gratefulness of just how many people had helped me get to that moment, how many people had influenced me in my life and how many shoulders that I stood on to be there. Um, it was, you know, obviously you guys have read the book. It was a very circuitous way to make the Olympic team. I never expected to be there, to be walking in that moment, but that's really where the flood of emotions came for me. Um, where I thought of my family, I thought of my teammates, I thought of my, um, city, I thought of, you know, I had a little sign that said hi, Winnipeg. And I, I pictured people back home watching it and thinking, oh, that girl's from Winnipeg, you know, and it was just, um, that I think was probably, my first uh, moment where I, I really truly believed that I was an Olympian. And, you know, you you talk so much about in the book about the, your, the relationships you had with your family and your friends. Um, but I'm really interested in the relationship that you had with your fellow goalies, uh, because it seems to be such a juxtaposition of appreciation for them, but then also so much of your success depended on their failures. Yeah, I'm just I'm interested in how you reconciled with that. Yeah, I tried to be very truthful in the book. So I'm glad that that kind of came across it. Um, it wasn't it wasn't easy. You know, these people that I um, admired and respected were incredibly talented and skilled goaltenders were also my competition. And there's not too many other positions in sport where you are on the same team, but you are competing head to head for that role. And we all wanted that that role of playing in the game, whatever game that was, whether it's the Olympics, World Championships, we all wanted to be playing at all times, but knew that, you know, when the other goalie was in the net, we had to support them. And that wasn't always easy. And I didn't want to candy coat those emotions within the book and just say, I just supported them and just cheered them on. Um, and, you know, I just wanted the team to win out because that's not real. I think when you know, I work a lot as a professional speaker and when I speak from the stage, usually what resonates the most with the audience is when I talk about those emotions and I realize that that everybody has those emotions, whether you're in sport, whether you're in a family, whether you're um, in a workplace environment, that we're all often put into these roles that we don't necessarily want to be in. Um, but we need to reconcile with ourselves those emotions to, in the end, be able to support the, the people around us. And that's why I really tried to do a lot of flashbacks within the book, because I wanted the reader to maybe understood why in that moment you know, despite a lot of tears and a, a lot of emotions, that in the big moments when I wasn't chosen to play, that um, I could look to others for strength. So I could look to some of my teammates in the past that maybe had done that. Um, I, there's a volleyball story that comes right before the 
um, Salt Lake City story of me not playing in the final game where two of my friends from high school, you know, I'd gone to high school with these girls right from kindergarten and they didn't get to play in the provincial volleyball final. And I never stopped one time to think about that. You know, they cheered with us at the end and they were super supportive. And I never stopped to think about how hard that moment was for them until I went through it. And once I was put in that position, I realized how many people in my life had had likely been put in that position, how many um, women had been in a position where they had to support their husbands in a situation, how many, or their partners, how many people had been, you know, maybe not doing the presentation at work, even though they did all the work for it, somebody else is getting all the credit. And so, you know, I had a, a ton of these um, flashpoints that I could kind of look to that helped me get through the moment, but that doesn't mean that they, the moments were easy. And I wanted the reader to understand that and to go through that with me, because I think more than anything, I wanted them to feel their emotions for a time that they went through something like this. And, you know, it might not be on the Olympic stage, but the emotions are the same. Um, we always, you know, I think it's a natural human condition to not want your team to possibly go on without you because you want to know that you're just so valuable that they can't possibly go on, but they do. And they always do. And so how can you be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem? And that was, it wasn't easy. And by no means am I, am I perfect at it even today? Um, there's still times where I am envious or I'm jealous or, um, but you know, I, I really try to live vicariously through others in that moment. And I think that that has helped me to, you know, share in their success has allowed me to find the joy in that moment as well. Well, speaking of a little bit of envy, I'm really interested in the rivalry with the U.S. Mm. Can you get into that a little bit and, okay. and tell us what that was like? For sure. So it uh, from the outside seems like this complete hatred. <laughs> that we have for the two sides. But the reality is that I would say that the hatred was there initially because we didn't know them. So the, the very first Women's World Championship happened in 1990, and the first Olympic Games happened in 1998. So there's a period of time in there for about eight years where there was no NCAA women's hockey um, or no youth sports hockey here in Canada. Um, there, you know, club sports or club teams were at its infancy at that point. So there wasn't much crossover. There wasn't uh, many girls that played alongside their American counterparts, for instance. So they didn't really know them that well. And it wasn't really until the 98 Olympics that that kind of started to happen after that, that some of our girls started to go down to college. Some of them started to come and play for our club teams. And slowly but surely, I feel like, you know, you started to see them as peers. You started to see them as teammates. And on my club team here in Toronto, I had many American teammates um, and vice versa. You know, there's Canadians that were down there. And so I think at that point, the rivalry changed. It changed from this uh, hatred of the other side to, I think, a mutual respect. Um, you know, I think that from the outside, it looked like uh, this, you know, this hatred that we had for them all the time because there's, you know, fights and the games are always so close. But ultimately, there is nobody in the world that really understood what we were going through except for them. I mean, they were doing, they were living the same life we were living. They were vying for the same championships. They were going through the same agonizing wins and defeats just on the opposite ends. And in the end, there has, I mean, there's a ton of uh, 
uh, friendships that have developed between the Canadians and Americans. Um, but also from the time that I played, there's three marriages that have happened from US and Canada. So um, unbeknownst to, I think, a lot of people at the time, um, there's just this incredible mutual respect for the other side. That doesn't mean that when you're on the ice, it isn't fight to, fight to the death. <laughs> And even today, some of the married couples, you know, there's some huge <laughs> between them um, where they sent them, you know, into another stratosphere, but it's all part of the game. And, um, you know, you just, you so badly want to play your best against the best. And they were always the best. And uh, speaking of playing your best, uh, I think, well, I, I shouldn't speak for you, but one of my favorite moments of the book and seemed to be a, a great victory for you uh, was in the game against Finland at the Four Nations Cup when you were in, well, did a shootout and then sudden death. And, um, and I'm just so interested in what's going on in your head in that moment, because that's the moment where the whole team's fate is in your hands. Um, and, and how you deal with that pressure um, and how you ultimately have success. Yeah, I think part, part of that, I mean, I'm going back to the naivete of the situation, but because it was my first big tournament besides the Olympics. So the Olympics, obviously, there's a ton of crowd. There's a ton of fans. In 98, um, that was really where my dream started. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up dreaming of this team. I didn't um, know who the adversaries were. I didn't know sort of the history of women's hockey. And that tournament that you're talking about happened pretty soon after the Nagano Olympics. So it was the start of the next season. And after Nagano, I went back down to Stanford in California. There's not much women's hockey. This is before the internet. So, you know, it's not like I even knew much about what had come out of the news in Canada after Nagano. And flew over to Finland with my teammates. Well, first flew from like San Francisco to Vancouver to Toronto and then met my teammates. And we headed over to Finland and... We had a very young uh, rookie team. Um, so, you know, a lot of the girls is the first time putting on the Team Canada jersey. So I felt a little bit like a veteran, um, a little bit, because we still had some uh, older veterans on the team. And uh, that particular venue that we played in was off in the middle of Finland. In northern Finland, um, there was uh, very little seating capacity. For the games against Finland, people came. But for the games against the U.S., nobody really came. So it was... Um, an interesting kind of juxtaposition of this is you in your first big Team Canada moment, but there's nobody watching. There's no cameras. Uh, the rink was freezing. I felt like I was playing outdoors in Winnipeg in minus 40. And it almost took me back to being like a young kid on the ice again. And it, um, you know, I think what made me a strong goaltender was the ability to kind of find joy in the moment, regardless of what was happening. Um, and even my teammates will will say that, you know, I was probably the most relaxed goalie that they saw. And it really wasn't until after that moment that I realized how big that moment was and um, how much it really um, set the trajectory for the rest of my career, um, being known as the sort of that big game goalie that could win it in the big moment. You know, I'd come from Stanford men's hockey at the time, um, we had never done a shootout up until that moment in 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 hockey in general. 98 was really the first time that shootouts happened. Until then, it was always you just kept playing. So because of the confusion over the shootout, too, I think that that kind of lent itself to the situation of just, all right, I guess I'll just go stop the puck. Here we go. And I didn't know the American shooters that well. 
So they, I didn't know their numbers as they were, as they were coming down on me. And it was, um, yeah, I think a combination of this, you know, young naivete and just not really um, feeling like this was an international game because it just, you know, the, the stadium, the situation um, didn't lend itself to that. It wasn't, I think, until we really came back that we saw it on the front page of the newspapers that we were like, oh, yeah, this is a really big deal. This is an international tournament. It, uh, you know, harbors back to perhaps my youth and my naivete at the moment and how I, I just always felt like, you know, just take the challenge as it comes and um, just do the best you can in that in that situation. And I didn't have any reference for, you know, if it went wrong, what would happen? It wasn't until later when I got pulled from a game or, you know, I had some setbacks where I maybe didn't play the game up until that, that moment, I hadn't really experienced that. So, you know, you win the shoot. You just assume you're going to win the shootout. There you go. You just <laughs> so it wasn't until later that I lost shootouts and I realized, oh, this could go very bad the other way. <laughs> it was interesting. I think it. I think it's that game where you said you couldn't. I think you couldn't tell who the U.S. players were that were coming at you, and you were glad because after you saw them skate away, you saw their number. You're like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like the very first shooter was Cami Granado, who I knew. I mean, <laughs> was like the best U.S. player. And I didn't know that she was shooting first. And they announced it in Finnish, too. So that's Yeah, that's why. Yeah. Like, and they announced the numbers. And I knew, like, my number. I knew my number one because I, from being on the blue line at the start of games, you know when your number is called, so you go and lift your stick. So all you really know is you need to know your number. <laughs> but luckily, I didn't know anybody else's number because, yeah, I don't think that I would have um, been as sort of calm, cool, and collected had I known that, like, one of the best players in the world was coming down on me in in that moment. So, you know, you really take us through high highs and low lows in this book. Um, And I'm just, just to kind of transition to talk about the book specifically, like, what is it like to write a book like this? I mean, it has to take a lot out of you because you, you know, you take us through the wins, you take us through the great saves, but you also take us through, you know, tragic losses and and being released. (laughs) What does it feel like to, to write a book like this? So I, I mean, it's hard for sure. The moments are hard because I tried to put myself in those moments. I tried to relive them. So, you know, when I'd write about like an exciting game and we had just won, like I would be on a high that night. Like I would be like so excited and uh, just be in such a joyous mood. But when I would write about, you know, maybe being pulled or something that didn't go my way, um, I'd be in a terrible mood. So I'd be like cooking dinner and my husband would say something like, you know, what did I do? Like, did I do something wrong? And like, I just, I felt like my whole mood just kind of went down. And so I just feel for him um, because I feel like he went through it all over again. And meanwhile, I'd be like in tears, like, no, I got pulled like 15 years ago. Um, But, you know, I think he had to go through all that. But for me personally, it was very cathartic. I think that what it did was it made the highs not seem as high and it made the lows not seem as low. So it kind of evened everything out and made me appreciate really what was truly special about that team. And it was the people. Um, Had I not, you know, watched so much game tape, I had not really watched any game tape prior to this moment uh, of writing the book. I had not seen the games that I'd played in really. Um, And, you know, I, I pictured things a certain way. And I think, you know, as a goaltender, we tend to focus on goals. That's like goals that have been scored on us. I don't mean goals in general. Um, and so you're constantly thinking about how you can improve or what you can do, or, you know, I should have had that or I shouldn't have had that. And I was um, 
you know, surprised to see that some goals that I thought were just terrible goals were actually really good goals and there's nothing I could have done and vice versa. Some big saves that, you know, I maybe had forgotten about. And um, so it, it kind of made me a little bit more even keeled when I looked back at the whole picture and uh, took away, I think, the losses and the rewards, you know, it took away the medals, it took away, it kind of scraped away all of that to make me appreciate the journey that I went through as a person, but also these incredible women, um, their strength, their resiliency. So many of the stories I had forgotten about my teammates, you know, like, for instance, uh, I talked about Becky Keller and they're coming back from um, having given birth twice to make the national team. She was the only one to have ever have done that in my career. And the first time she did it, uh, we were centralized in um, Prince Edward Island. Uh, she brought her baby with her. Uh, you know, she had a nanny with her. And we just, we never really saw her child. Like, it, she just took care of the child off to the side. And we were, you know, younger. You don't, none of us had kids, so we didn't know what that meant. And it wasn't until later as a mo- mother now writing the story about what Becky did that I realized just how incredible this was. Um, and there's so many moments like that, that, you know, I didn't really appreciate um, what my other teammates were doing and the struggles that they were going through because you could, beca- you become so selfish in that situation. You just, you have blinders on, you're just trying to get through every day. Cause it is, it is pretty grueling to go through all the training um, and you don't often stop and think. So I'm, I am, uh, glad that I got to write about it because it uh, allowed me to really internalize some of those amazing feats. It also is pretty strange now, having written the book, that now, you know, I'm in a whole different social circle. I mean, I have a, a, some friends that live in Toronto that played on that team. Um, but for the most part, um, most of my friends would not know many of these stories about me. Um, most of my high school friends would, you know, like, I feel like those are the ones that I'm still closest to, but some of my newer friends now or newer acquaintances now have read every intimate detail about me. And that's, you know, walking into a a venue where now everybody kind of knows the details of your life is um, very different. You know, it's kind of unexpected because it's a one way relationship. I feel like I want to get to know everything about that person because I feel like they, you know, they ask me so many good questions now because they've read all this, but it's like, I want to be able to ask you the same questions. Um, so I feel like now I'm like struggling to keep up in conversations because, um, well, you guys have seen this. I just, I keep talking and I obviously I love talking, but now I want to like listen to the other person more than I ever have. Shifting focus a little bit. I I'm really interested in your work with right to play. Uh, can you talk about why that organization is important to you and, and the work that you do with them? For sure. So I've been with Right to Play uh, since 1999. Um, they started as a um, organization that was called Olympic Aid uh, back in the day. I'm not sure how I really got connected with them. I think it was at the Olympics in Nagano, there's a booklet that came out and it was just explaining about what they do on the world stage of how um, this uh, former Olympian, uh, Johan Koss, who was a speed skater for uh, Norway, had started this organization. He himself, a medical doctor, Um, had traveled into refugee camps and realized that these kids um, had nowhere to play. And, you know, so much of, um, I guess, assistance and aid is dedicated to food and water and shelter, which are all very important. Um, However, in these circumstances, what he felt was really needed was uh, somewhere where the kids could just be kids and could just um, flourish and, 
um, have education through sport, uh, but also, uh, you know, develop friendships, um, cross borders, uh, where, you know, you could play alongside teammates that maybe you wouldn't have prior. So erase some of the boundaries that we had in uh, our world cultures. So when I read about that, it was something that just um, really intrigued me. And um, as an athlete, I think we become, you know, so focused on ourselves that I wanted to have something else in my life that um, also gave it purpose. And that I felt like, in a way for all the selfish behavior and all the hard work that I did on, you know, whether it's my performance, my body, my game, whatever, um, that I was doing something for other people as well. And so it wasn't until I moved to Toronto after Stanford uh, that I realized that this Olympic aid organization had morphed to become right to play. So they can no longer use the Olympic um, logo. That was the IOC told them that, which unfortunate, but um, they came up with this name, Right to Play, and Johan Koss had happened to move to Canada to marry Belinda Stronach, actually, who was a former MP in Canada. They are no longer together. but So he lived in Canada, and um, my very first time with the um, national team, uh, we were I, I got to meet him at an event, and I had already known a lot about the organization, and so picked his ear a little bit about how I could be of assistance. And he indicated that a lot of athletes – do these overseas overseas trips uh, to whether it's um, you know various places that uh, third world countries or refugee camps um, and just to provide some motivation and I really felt like I didn't want to do that because I didn't want somebody else spending money on me going to take these trips and not to say that I don't think it's incredibly valuable but as a hockey player you know, maybe it was better suited to have a world superstar soccer player that these kids are going to know. Um, so I worked um, primarily in Canada fundraising. So I did events here, uh, tried to raise money for the organization. And then in 2010, they announced for the first time ever a play program, which is promoting uh, leadership skills amongst Aboriginal youth in Canada. And once I heard that, I felt like this is something that I really wanted to be a part of. So that's when I started to travel to the communities across uh, primarily Ontario, but also Manitoba and Alberta into First Nations communities um, to basically um, they had programs that were already running there and they just did these weekend hockey clinics as a reward for the clinic that was or for the program that was already running. And what I loved about it was that they hired from within. They've hired from within the community provided leadership skills uh, that these First Nations, uh, Indigenous kids from across the country could come together and uh, learn from each other, share best practices. And that simply we were just providing this reward kind of at the end of you get to uh, touch and feel some gold medals and you get to have this hockey clinic. And for me, it was so incredibly special to get to see parts of the country I maybe would have never been exposed to and to get to meet some incredible people that provided me with such um, grounding um, and really did give me such a, such a purpose for what I was doing on, on the rink um, and provided me with these amazing experiences that I don't think I would have had otherwise. So I'm glad I waited and really eventually got uh, to work with something that was so close to my heart. Um, and so I've been to now, I want to say 12, um, communities, First Nations communities, um, and uh, yeah, continue to do as much as I can for the organization, but I can't 
say that, I mean, I, I'm just a small, small part of what they do. What they do on a world stage is absolutely incredible. And uh, what Johan has created, I, I still so strongly believe that at the end of the day, that's what, you know, I try to get across in this book is that it is simply about play. It is, you know, sometimes we all need that. We just need a space where we can just be ourselves and just, you know, have fun with friends. And that's what um, sport can do for us and music and all those other things. And so speaking about, you know, spending time with kids and, and hockey players, you know, what do you tell, you know, young Olympians to be that you meet? Um, what do you tell young hockey players? What advice do you give, I guess? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I, there isn't really too much advice that I try to impart. And that's also what I tried to do in this book is I, I at the end of the day, I didn't necessarily want to have a you know, after each chapter, this is what you should take away from it. This is what you should do. This is what you should change in your life. Because I think that stories are so incredibly valuable and um, useful for the person in that moment. So uh, with, you know, young girls, young boys, with kids, um, I try, try to tell stories and I try to recount some stories from my life. And um, then they can take away from it what they need, you know, what they need at that moment. Um, and it could be simply something as simple as, you know, the way you're supposed to hold your stick properly, that might be what they need at that moment, or it might be um, some tools for um, dealing with a bully at school, you know, it, every kid is in a different situation. And so I don't want to try to assume what they're going through. I think, you know, as I have progressed, um, in my elder statesmanship now, I think I, I try to listen much more than I did, you know, and really um, hear what young kids are saying, um, because I think often their voices aren't heard. And uh, that to me is, you know, 90% of the way is just listening to these young kids, hearing what their life is like and hearing their stories. That's, you know, I think half the battle. So I just took a course through the University of Alberta on Indigenous studies. And for the first time, uh, heard uh, that that really is an Indigenous way of thinking that the elders will not impart um, what to do, but will impart stories and wisdom. And I love that. I love that it's, you know, about storytelling and that it's about taking from it what you need. And I'm sure both you guys, I mean, both you guys have read and or listened to the book. So I appreciate that. But I'm sure both you guys took a very different messaging away based on know where you are, what you're doing, what sort of is impactful for you. And I'm sure 10 years from now, if you were to read it, it would be different, you know? So um, yeah, it, that's, sorry, Katie, that's a, a long winded <laughs> way of saying what advice would I, I give? No advice, nothing. <laughs> Have fun and enjoy it, I guess. Well, you know, it is true. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a young uh, aspiring Olympian, but there is plenty that I gleaned from your book. I, I found it so transferable to, to every day. And, and, you know, Katie and I are both uh, aspiring lawyers. We're both articling and um, so much of our daily lives are, are really stressful and in high pressure situations. I mean, it's, it's nothing can, um, you know, we're talking about an Olympic game, but, um, <laughs> but, it is but it, it, I mean, it is as much as you put your time and effort into something, it is the same. That's for sure. It just, and the yeah, jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> the the jealousy is the same. Yeah, the, <laughs> same. the only difference I say is when you make a mistake, 17,000 people are not um, yelling at you. Um, That's true. But when you make a mistake, it is, you know, it could be that person's life, you know? It's, yeah. it's you just deal. get sued. So, 
<laughs> no pressure. But you know what? The next time I make a mistake, I'm going to think that. There's not 17 million people watching not this mistake. a big mistake red right light that goes on behind your head and glows yeah. up the entire crease. Yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could get that at work for you, though, if you want. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys took away some things for sure. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about, like, how do you feel about the state of women's hockey? So... Obviously, you played in the first iteration of the NWHL, which folded and has since been reborn. Um, you played for the CWHL, which you were also a co-founder of and a GM. But how are you feeling about women's hockey now? I, I kind of see, it seems that there's a little bit of a tension. You know, unfortunately, you know, these leagues are folding, but at the very same time, you know, there are good competitive leagues for young female hockey players to start in. You know, how do you reconcile that? For sure. I'm, I, you're so, I, I could talk to you for about another hour. <laughs> um, this is a huge question, but I'm glad Katie that you mentioned um, the positives. Cause I think, you know, I often get asked this question um, having done sort of the book tour. Now, this is always seems to be near the end of the conversation. You know, what, what do you think of the state of women's hockey and why do you think it's failed or whatever? And I, people often neglect the positives that have happened. There are so many more opportunities for young girls so what do I think of the state of women's hockey? I think it is at an incredible um, point. I think the amount of girls that play hockey and its acceptance within Canadian society, within North American society really is, um, is incredible. So little girls walking into a rink, it is no longer seen as abnormal. So that to me is incredible. The fact that these girls can play for various different club teams, um, you know, double B, all the way up to double A. Um, they can play for the provincial teams, the regional teams, have college scholarships, um, and aspire to, you know, under 18 national team, under 22, the national team, the Olympics. There are so many things that these girls can aspire to. So I think that overall, it is incredibly healthy. There is this small segment of women's professional hockey that is in disarray, for lack of a better word. So there is a professional league, the NWHL, not to be confused with our original NWHL, um, new NWHL that just expanded to Toronto. So there'll be a team, the Toronto Six, next year. Um, but the majority of players that played in the CWHL, which folded, are refusing to play in that league, um, waiting to come under the NHL umbrella. So, um, you know, I think... The girls that are part of the new PWHPA, which is the Players Association, um, have some grandiose plans, and I I fully I fully back them. I mean, I feel like their ideals of wanting more, of feeling like they should have equal pay, um, are grand ideals that are, are they should be they should have their dreams come true. They should be able to come under the NHL umbrella. But what I fear is that that will not happen right away. And so these girls that have chosen to sit out from this other league, uh, there's a generation of them, and not the national team players, because they can still practice, they still get paid. It's that next generation of girls that I talk a lot about in the book, the club team hockey player that has nowhere to play, that have made this decision to do what they think is the best for the future generation, but they themselves will not have these experiences of riding the bus with their teammates, of lifting the cup, of being down by goal and try to fight back, of, um, you know, practical jokes in the dress room, all these things that go with just being part of the team, they're going to miss out on. And so I just feel really bad for those girls. I feel like 
Um, I wish that the two sides, and Katie, you mentioned it, the tension. I just, I hate that there are even sides in women's hockey. I hate that um, they, we just can't get along. And I understand the politics behind it because, I, you know, having been a part of the politics, it was really hard when the CWHL collapsed for me because I, it was something that I did help start. Um, I sat on the board for the first six years of its existence. And I think what gets mixed up in women's sport and women's hockey is when we talk about the CWHL failing, people assume it's women's hockey failing. But the reality is it's just a business failing. It's just a business that wasn't managed well in the end, and uh, it failed. And so, you know, what will come next, I think, is something really exciting. I I don't know when that will be. Um, but, you know, every league seems to build on each other. We were paid for the first time ever in, the, in that league. And so the next iteration, the salaries hopefully will be something that is more akin to um, minimum wage, at least within this country. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, we always stand on the shoulders of others and hopefully what comes next will be even greater. And I, I now am simply a fan sitting back, um, wanting to cheer for something. I just want to know what to get behind. You know, it's, I'm in it. I'm in the thick of it. And I don't even know what to get behind. I want both to succeed, but in saying you want both to succeed, you're almost picking one over the other. You know, there's anxiety of which way to go of who to, to support. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what the, what the solution is there, but there's a lot of great minds within the game that I think will figure it out. Um, this whole pandemic thing has thrown sort of a crux into the, into women's uh, sport in general. I think it's, you know, we're get, it's going to be harder for us to come back. Um, however, that doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, and you know, a lot has been done over the years by women that nobody else thought was possible. And I'm just excited to see what the future holds. Um, and I'll be cheering along the way for both sides and for, uh, girls to simply be able to have those experiences that I had in the book, because that's what ultimately that's what I remember. And that's what I want them to be able to have, uh, while still being able to, you know, hopefully someday actually be paid a, a good wage to play the game they love. Well, that's fantastic. I feel like we had a nice full circle <laughs> ending there. <laughs> um, is there any uh, other things that you want to pimp out? Um, your Instagram, your Twitter, another project? Um, want to well, make sure. I, what do you want to plug? Yeah. <laughs> so I want to let all your listeners know that um, obviously I couldn't do a book tour. Um, Winnipeg has actually been so great and um, has sold more books than any other place. Which is really awesome. but it means that I can't go across the country to sign books as most authors, new authors would. So I went out and I bought these stickers. Um, so if anybody wants an autograph for their book, I will sign it um, and make it out to whomever the person wants. They can have as many of these as they want for their books. I just get excited that people are buying it. So they can send an email to me. Um, it's on my website, which if you just Google my name. Um, then you can find my email, send me, um, who you'd like it for and free of charge. I will send this anywhere in North America. Perfect. We'll pop that in our show notes. So it's easy to find. Perfect. Other than that, um, nothing else to plug. Just, uh, (laughs) you know what you guys are doing. It's awesome. And I hope you liked my sign. I can't see what it says. It says, hi, just watch me. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh! That's fantastic. I have yeah. so many uh, windows open that it's really small. Okay, yeah, that's you'll why. See <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Well, 
Well, thank you guys. And hopefully someday our paths will actually cross, not virtually. In real life. That would be great. <laughs> your careers as well to both you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Very you. Much. And we so appreciate you taking the time tonight. Um, no and yeah, for having and good luck with the book. Yeah. And awesome. congratulations. Thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.